Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. This week, we're going to revisit one of our very favorite holiday episodes, chock full of great stories. But first, I want to let you know that today's show is brought to you by Casper. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code R-I-S-K. That's C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash risk and use the promo code R-I-S-K. Now listen, Casper sent me one of these mattresses and these things are amazing. This is a -a one-of-a-kind hybrid mattress. It combines premium latex foam and memory foam. This is the kind of mattress that you could pay upwards of $1,500 for in the store. But with Casper, you'll only be paying $500 for a twin or $950 for a king. And it's completely risk-free. It's free delivery and free returns within a 100-day period. Just the right sink. Just the right bounce. I'm telling you, I'm in love with this mattress. And it's also amazing the way that it comes. It comes in a box. You can't believe it fits a mattress in there. And then you break it open and it kind of assumes its full form. Anyway, act now and get $50 off any mattress. Just visit casper.com slash risk and use the promo code RISK. That's C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash RISK, and the promo code is RISK. Also, with the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream, so use stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your letters and packages. We use stamps.com. Why don't you use stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code. 
It's a no-risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. <gasps> Plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus off for the digital scale. And free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Ramsey Lewis Trio behind me now. And this is the first of this year's two holiday stories episodes. It's always a loaded time of year to be collecting stories. People have the big things on their minds. Faith. Faith is a Big one this time. For adults and kids. Adults have this this man they call the son of God to have to wrestle with. A lot of people this time of year are like, how do I feel about that dude? And just to keep things a little painful, along with all the pleasure, we give the kids this figure, Santa, to be all, you know, bewildered and suspicious about and of course there's family stories and the stories that come to mind when you bring up family and christmas with people are the times that things kind of you know went skidding into the guardrails no one brings drama into your life with quite the depth and zest that your family members do and one of the things i love about this year's uh the collection on this and the next episode is that we have several stories from you guys, from Risk fans who wrote in to us. And there's a truly extraordinary one coming up. A Risk fan named Christine. She's getting her PhD at Columbia University. She wrote in with this story that kind of knocked me out on paper, and I thought, let's give her a chance to do that on stage in New York. And that was a good idea. We're going to hear Christine's story in just a bit. But first, another Risk fan... His name is Steve Spatucci. He wrote in with this story, and I realized we were born right around the same time when he was telling this story because every toy he mentions, <laughs> I played with quite a lot when I was a kid. So let's roll it on back to 1976, my friends, with Mr. Steve Spatucci <laughs> and a story we call Taking It to the Man. 
Back in the mid-70s, I was six years old, and uh, I started to come to the conclusion that Santa Claus might not exist. And I think part of the reason that that might have happened was because I have siblings that are almost two decades older than me. They were married at that point, and they were at the age where I was practically a child to them. So I had heard, uh, I had heard them say some things. And specifically, I remembered my sister on Christmas came into our house and said, uh, Ooh, I think I just saw Santa. He was riding his sleigh. And, and that's when I first noticed that, like, that intonation adults get when they're making something up. I went on and, and, and started to analyze the way adults talked about Santa. And I just realized, you know, just it kind of uh, broke the seal. And I realized this is uh, not true. So I told my parents about it. And they were angry. And I think they were mostly angry because, not because they thought I had lost any kind of um, chance to have that, like, Santa, the mythical figure. But I think they just didn't want to lose the fact that they could blackmail me with the whole Santa myth. So um, I think uh, this was probably in the month before Christmas. I was going to uh, be making an appearance at a department store in North Jersey. My father had told me that he made special plans for me to see Santa Claus. And he was a department manager, so he had some pull there. I had already overheard my parents saying that they were going to use Santa in this instance to convince me that he was real. But to my face, what they told me was, Oh, Stevie, you know, you got to go. You got to go see Santa. He's going to get you up there. And he really wants to meet you. And he really wants to, to talk to you about the way you've been this year and how you've been a good boy. And I was pissed because, you know, that only reinforced the feelings that I had already that he wasn't a real figure. So I came up with a plan and it was kind of an evil plan, but I knew the layout of the store. So before I went to see Santa, I went down the toy aisle and because my father was a department manager, I kind of had free reign there. So I went down the toy aisle and I found a bunch of um, action figures. Rock'em Sock'em Robots, which was the classic robotic boxing game. The Six Million Dollar Man was everywhere. You could peel up his arm and look at his circuitry inside. There was the Evil Knievel collection, including the stunt bike, which I already had. Plenty of Hot Wheels, air hockey, and other 70s toys. And I walked down and took it all in and took my pick of what I believe were just a series of no-name action figures. And through my head, I was just running through like, I know I can pick these heads off like cherries. And I went down, ripped open the blister packs, and took about three or four heads right off and put them into my jacket pocket. My plan was to have a little blackmail information for Santa. So... Because my father had so many employees, there was a kind of a big special moment. I think they were all in on it, and they knew that when I went up to see Santa, that they knew that what was going on behind the scenes. And I saw my parents watching me, and I saw all the employees watching me. The way this Santa setup was positioned, it was in the front of the store, and it was on a platform. So there was a really harsh sunlight coming through. And it was a typical Santa, probably a 50-year-old man who just happened to have a white beard and didn't do much throughout the year. And um, I do think there was a point 
where he was so sincere that I actually regretted what I was going to do, but I muscled through it. I got up in his lap and he asked me, Oh, what do you want this year? And I threw in the name of whatever toy I didn't expect to get. And uh, I said, Santa, do you know everything about me? And he said, Oh, sure. Uh, I know everything. And I said, Well, have I been a good boy or a bad boy? And he said, Oh, Stevie, you've been a good little boy. And then I reached in my pocket and pulled out the action figure heads and said, then why do I have these? And there was a moment of silence. I remember a few women who worked for my father who had lined up along the side of the platform just silently turned and walked away. My mother looked disgusted, sickened, nauseated, and my father was just embarrassed. My mother grabbed my hand, we walked silently toward the car, and I don't remember ever having heard any discussion of whether or not Santa was real again. say without hyperbole um, that my childhood was like something out of a road doll novel. I, for whatever reason, latched on to reading and learning at a super young age, but I am from working class people, Republican, really not educated, very passionate about their uneducated views. Uh, and, and so a typical Monday night in my household would be me in the hallway devouring a bookshelf filled with a motley collection of whatever the church library was done with and my family my parents and my two brothers in the living room with their tv dinners uh yelling at the tv like at the grown men roughly fondling each other on the national football league this was a typical monday night i am the only person in my family to go to college i'm the only person on either side of my family as far as you want to look ever to go to grad school ever so my family, let me start here. <laughs> this is hard, I'm sorry. Whenever anyone meets my parents, and one of the first things they ask naturally is about their children. And my parents always start with this. We have two boys, U.S. Marines. And then people are like, oh, thank you for their service. Uh, and then they go, oh, yeah, and then we have a daughter. 
She's in New York. She's doing this doctor thing. We don't know. Not a medical doctor. Some other kind of doctor. We don't know. (laughs) My parents, they drove 11 plus hours to both of my brothers' boot camp graduations at Paris Island, but would not drive seven hours for my Harvard graduation. Now, to be clear, we love each other very much. My family and I, we love each other very much. Like, we would lay down on train tracks in a second, for, if you asked, right? But we just don't understand each other at all. And so after the, uh, I'll call it the infamous breakfast table incident of Ot 5, uh, when my two brothers were throwing around the word fag with disturbing ease and frequency, and I finally flipped out on them and went off on a lecture about how ignorant and offensive they were, and my dad interrupts this diatribe and that booming voice of my childhood. And I'm like, oh, whoa, little Miss Harvard, you're going to come down here and tell us how to talk. Don't you correct my boys at my table. I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I won't be eating at your table either. So I got up. And after that incident, we just decided, like, there are certain things that we will not talk about as a family in order to maintain some kind of civility. But despite all of this, all of these differences, there are really only two times that I have viscerally felt just how profoundly my path has diverged from my family's. And one of them was two Christmases ago when my dad's friend Walt brings over a gift for my dad, and it was a mint condition World War II rifle and a Marine issue knife. And of course my brothers, they're immediately drooling over this. They come over, they're like fondling the wood on the rifle and running their fingers down the blade of the knife, and I'm in the corner reading my New Yorker. (laughs) 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 Ignoring them until one of the brothers says like, he has, a, he has an idea, Matt. He's like, oh, hey, Mom, go get the camera. And I lift my eyes like, what's going on? And I see my youngest brother kind of disappear into the hallway. And the middle one, Matt, his shirt, he had taken it off. And he was adjusting the strap of that rifle around his chest. And then Derek, the baby, he comes back into the living room. And I see what he's been doing in the bathroom. And my stomach has only dropped like that one other time. And it was the first time Derek came home after boot camp. And he wanted to show me something on his laptop. And we sat down on the couch, and he opened it up. And there, as his background image on his laptop, was a picture of a dead man. Splayed on his back, like rifle in his hand, and just a mess of bone and flesh where a head should be. And I said, what the fuck is that? And he said, oh, as if he didn't even notice it anymore. Double clicking on the file he wanted. That's a dead Iraqi. And so when Derek comes back into the room that crisp day, and I see that he's taken two towels from the bathroom and he's wrapped one around his head and the other around his face. And he took a rifle from my dad's back room and he announces to the room, it's time for some role play. And everybody starts laughing and I'm the only one who's not. And they start posing for the camera 
taking pictures of feigning fear, feigning death, feigning victory. And this is such a great time for everyone except for me. And I'm having difficulty breathing. And Matt extends the bayonet on the rifle and sends my mom into the kitchen for some ketchup. Eight months later, my baby brother Derek comes back from Afghanistan, a totally different person. His brand new marriage is on the rocks. He is clearly racked by PTSD, but refuses to get any help for it because in the Marines, if you get diagnosed with PTSD, it follows you around and you're not able to do certain things. So he refuses to go to therapy at all in order to avoid that. About a week after he got back, my parents threw a huge party for him. I went down for it. And long after everyone was drunk and passed out in bed, it was just him and me, and we were on my parents' porch in the house in rural Maryland where there's a marine banner in the window. There's marine bumper stickers on the car. My, my dad has a marine hat. My mom has a marine sweatshirt. And he tells me, he tells me about his buddy, his closest friend from Afghanistan who came out to him after he already considered him a brother and how that changed everything about what he thought about gay people. And he told me about everything that he had seen and everything he had done, really horrible things that, that he hadn't even told his wife and that I won't tell you to protect him. And the levity, the levity of that night with the ketchup, it stood so starkly against the weight of his actual experience that there was none, none, none of our differences mattered in that moment. And so I just cradled his head against my stomach and let him cry against my T-shirt. And we just felt everything that will always connect us, no matter what. Thank you.
his risk. The song is called Hungover Boxing Day by the Gasoline Brothers. And wasn't Christine's story just beautiful and brave? It has been a beautiful and brave year for our show, folks. And so much of it is because you guys have shared with us. And I think I can say that you guys are making risk riskier. So listen, bring it on. We invite more. We have a submissions page at risk-show.com. You just go there. There's guidelines to help you put together a pitch for us. There's little tips on what to include that will grab our attention. So that's one way you can participate with us as our adventure continues in 2013. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear from one of our dear friends, Michelle Carlo, who we recently had on on a Halloween episode as well. But before that, we're going to revisit a story that we featured last year. This is our friend Elna Baker at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call For the Love of Nubbins. So I moved to New York to do acting, and uh, I never, I auditioned, I never, I've actually, still, I've never been cast once in anything. Uh, But the first acting job I actually was able to get was as a toy demonstrator at FAO Schwartz. And it's an acting job, you work retail, but basically you have to audition, you read a monologue by Princess Pretty, and then for two weeks, you have to rotate from toy to toy so they have confidence that you can do this. And there's like the fun toys, like I like being on uh, jewelry because I would just make earrings for myself all day and you're supposed to give them to the kids, I never did. Uh, (laughs) But then there were like sucky toys like Band in the Box where it's like maracas, a tambourine and clapper and you do that for eight hours. Worst band ever. Uh, Or there was a toy veterinarian kit where you have like a stuffed animal dog and you'd have to interrupt families as they go through the store and you're like spot is sick can you help me figure out what's wrong with spot which is like you know basically like you and your family want to be left alone but i'm an actor (laughs) mortifying Uh, but after two weeks i got assigned to the most high profile of the toys it was the lee middleton doll collection and i don't know if any of you have seen these dolls but basically They're weighted in the head and the bottom so that they flop like newborn babies. And it's so creepy. And I worked on the second floor in the adoption center, which was this cottage that they built, and there were all these incubators and incubators of the babies, and there was a white picket fence around it and two rocking chairs. And a typical day of work would go as follows. You know, parents and their children would look at these dolls, and then if they were serious about adoption, we would open the white picket fence and escort the prospective parent usually like a seven-year-old girl, into one of the rocking chairs, and we had to conduct an adoption interview. And again, I'm in like a nurse's uniform with with the whole, you know, everything. And it would begin, uh, do you promise to love and care for this baby? Will you read to the baby? Will you change the baby's diaper? And the little girls would always answer, you know, yes. And then you would get to the last question, 
what would you like to name the baby? And there was always like, you know, Princess Tiffany of Fairy Flower Land. <laughs> and you would write that on a birth certificate and hand it to the parent and then say, now all you have to do is pay the adoption fee, wink, wink, which was like $120. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were instructed not to use, you couldn't say purchase or cost or buy, you know, because that would break the illusion of the world. Uh, and the other thing that, you know, typically when it gets slow at work, you can talk with your coworkers. I worked with three other nurses. And, uh, but that would also break the illusion of the world. So if we weren't working with a customer, we had to always be holding, rocking, or bouncing the display baby doll. The display baby doll was on display for a reason. Something horrible happened in the factory on the day of its conception. It, um... <laughs> Its head weighed five pounds more than all the other babies' heads. So you would pick it up and its head would just flop back uh, violently. And its uh, hands uh, had been molded together so it looked like it had flippers. So <laughs> that you pick it up and the head would flop back and the flippers would fly up. And it looked like a tabloid monster baby, which is how it earned its nickname. We called it Nubbins. And uh, because Nubbins wasn't up for adoption, he didn't even have an incubator. He was kept in a cupboard, which was, like, so disturbing because he looked realistically dead. You just open the cupboard and be like, downward dog dead baby. You'd have to scoop him up and pretend that you cared for him. So uh, these dolls were really expensive. So for most of September, October, we weren't really selling them, which meant that we spent a lot of time holding, rocking, and bouncing baby Nubbins. So much time that like you kind of start to resent. I would complain of lower back pain. I was like, <laughs> so uh, us nurses, uh, we invented a game, and the object of the game was to try to get another girl to break character by doing something horrible to baby nubbins. <laughs> so like you know, I would open all the the drawers and rock nubbins's head into the jagged edges while like humming a lullaby. Or the best would be like, there'd be a whole group of people there and you really have to, you scoop up the baby and you really make it look like it's real, you know, burp it. And then at just the right moment, you drop the baby. <laughs> it's, it, everyone knows it's not real, but they still are like, <gasps> gas. <laughs> so, I mean, that, we would just spend all day doing horrible things to nubbins. And then one day, it was right after Thanksgiving, everything changed. Uh, do you guys know that there's that show Rich Girls? It was like the first stupid reality show about rich children. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger's daughter was in it. But they came to FAO Schwartz and they adopted a baby. And the day after it aired, suddenly, these were like the hot items to get for Christmas and every mother on the Upper East Side had to have one for her child. And there was a line outside on the street of people waiting to adopt. And it, you know, we couldn't, no more horseplay, no more pranks. It was like, you know, adoptions left and right. And within one week, we sold out of all of the white babies. <laughs> and it was three weeks until Christmas. The babies were already on back order, so there was no way to get any more white babies. All we had left were incubator upon incubator of minority babies. <laughs> so every day, the same scenario would repeat itself. These mothers, you know, eager to get the hot toy of the year would rush up to the adoption center and you just watch, they would stop dead in their tracks and their heads go from incubator to incubator. <laughs> They'd like pause briefly at the Asian baby, like, oh, oh never mind, <laughs> to incubator. And then they would look at us, you know, trying their best to be politically correct. They would be like, I'm sorry, do you have any other shades of babies? 
Well, the toy manager had like prepped us with a response. He taped a memo in the women's locker room that said, if the mothers express a disinterest with the babies due to their ethnicity, kindly inform them that while this is all the selection we have available, there's a wider selection available online they can order online. Well, this isn't what these women wanted to hear. They would go on and on, and they'd be like, oh, don't you have something like my little Susan here? Just something that looks like Susan. (laughs) And so this happened so much that we, you know, we invented another game. And the game was this. Like, if the little girl didn't care, but it was clear the mother did, we would put the mother on the spot by, you know, we'd scoop up a baby and be like, oh, little Maria has really taken to you. And hand it to the, you would make an excellent mommy for Maria. And you just see these mothers in the background like, why are you doing this to me? What did I ever do to you? And the second game we invented involved Brad's memo. Uh, we'd, instead of saying a whiter selection, we'd have to say whiter selection <laughs> without getting caught or breaking character. But like, those are the things you do just to survive a job. Because literally every day, these things I didn't expect would happen. And I remember once, in particular, this woman, uh, I, I tried to, to, to sell her a Hispanic baby. And she put her hand on mine and was like, oh, we don't want a dark child. You know what I mean. I was like, no, I I don't. But also, unbeknownst to her, I'm actually half Mexican. Uh, I just look white. And my brother's, there's five kids. Three are dark, two of us are white. So I, I, you know, I don't know what she means. But also, I don't know what she means. Does she honestly think that if someone saw her carrying a Hispanic baby, they would be like, oh, Juan the gardener knocked that kid up. only half the story because while we had sold out of all the white babies, we still had Nubbins, who was white with red hair and these green eyes. So if we weren't working with a customer, we still had to be holding, rocking, and bouncing Nubbins. So almost every day, some woman would rush up to the the adoption center, see Nubbins in our arms, and think in their mind, they're like, that's the last white baby. So they would say, can I see that baby? All you ever had to do was turn Nubbins around. (laughs) And his head would like flop back and the flippers would flip up and they would just say, uh, never mind. And this, you know, this happened so often that us nurses, we decided to make a bet. And the bet was, who do you think is going to sell first, the minority babies or nubbins? And I was like, oh, the minority babies for sure. Who would buy nubbins? And, and then, so, okay, to be honest, there are, there are two ways to end this story. There's the politically correct way, or there's the, do you guys want to hear the real, what really happened? Yes. <laughs> All right, it's so depressing. What really happened is this. Uh, we did start to sell out of the minority babies. We sold, um, we, first we sold out of all the Asian babies. Uh, then we sold out of all the Hispanic babies. And then all we had left were incubator upon incubator of black baby dolls and nubbins. So inadvertently, the bet had become, who will go first, the black babies or nubbins? Well, I stood by my initial bet. I was like, we're never going to sell nubbins. But then uh, Christmas Eve, this woman rushes into the store, and she's, she's you know, one of those people dressed head to toe in designer, and she's like toting along this, this solemn child. She gets up to the adoption center. I'm holding nubbins, and she's like, can I see that baby? So I turn nubbins around, you know, slowly for full effect. <laughs> And his head like flops back, the flippers flip up, and she just says, we'll take it. I'm like, nubbins? I, like, I, I don't even know if you can sell nubbins, but I was like, okay. So 
I open the white picket fence, I sit this little girl down, and I begin the adoption interview. I say, uh, do you promise to love and care for this baby? And this child looks up at me and she says, no. <laughs> and I like, didn't, I mean, I had been doing hundreds of adoptions. No one, technically she had failed the adoption interview. <laughs> so, for, so I'm like, move on. I'm like, will you read to the baby? And she just looks, she's like, no. <laughs> So I, I skip to the last question. I say, I'm like, well, what would you like to name the baby? Stupid. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not Nubbins' best friend. I'm not going to call him stupid. So I'm like, well, let's think of other names. And the mother impatiently interrupts. She's like, oh, just name the baby Veronica. It's like, they're not anatomically correct, but he's clearly a boy. So I write Veronica on the birth certificate. And I'm like, now all you have to do is pay the adoption fee. And the mother looks at me and she's like, cute and takes the birth certificate and they walk away and I, you know, I scoop up nubbins and I put them in a pink blanket instead of a blue one. And as I'm wrapping him up, that's when it hits me. I'm like, wait, nubbins has just been adopted. Like, I love nubbins. Like, I can't let him go to this horrible family. And there's this like montage, you know, like we, we one time put his head underneath the rocking chair. Or like we used to make out with him, <laughs> see if people would turn the corner and then be like, oh, like all these memories. And I was like, I can't let him go to this family. And I was like, but I, I mean, I don't have 120 spare dollars, I'm, you know. And so then I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll call my dad and I'll just be like, Dad, there was this baby and he was gonna go to a bad family and I think I could be a good family for him. And as as I'm saying this. Uh, you know, and I think honestly, it was also just like I didn't want to lose the bet. Like I didn't want that to be the way the world was. So as I'm going through this, they return, and then you know I do what I have to do. I hand them little baby nubbins, and I say, um, "I'm sure baby Veronica will have a wonderful home." And then I watch him, his head bouncing on the little girl's shoulder outside the store until I can't see them anymore. Thank you. It was just a typical Tuesday a couple of weeks before Christmas. And I came home from school and went right into my bedroom. And instead of doing my homework, opened up the window and went out to the fire escape, lit a cigarette, took out my boom box, tried to, you know, make a mixtape, 
wrapped up some tinfoil on the antenna, pointing it towards the Whitestone Bridge so I can get some reception. So in between making the tape and smoking the cigarette, and now it's starting to snow and trying to keep the snow off the boombox, I didn't hear my mom come in the room and say that she needed me to stop whatever I was doing and go to the store for her right now. And I was like, oh, man. Because the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, stop making a mixtape and stop smoking my cigarette and go to the store for my mom. And then when she told me what she wanted me to get for her, that was the last thing that I wanted to get. Oh, my God. She wanted me to get Kotex. Not just any box of Kotex, but the super box of Kotex. The big super box of Kotex that was bright purple with yellow letters and was so tall it stuck out of any bag it was put in so when you were carrying it down the street everybody who looked at that bag looked at you and knew that you were the one that was bleeding a lot and when you're 15 the last thing you want to know is that somebody else is looking at you and knows that you are bleeding a lot so I'm just like, I'm like growling to myself and I'm so pissed off and I'm stomping down the street to the drugstore, swearing that if I ever have a daughter, I'm never going to make her go out and buy my menstrual supplies. And I get to the drugstore and I put the box on the counter and the pimple face, four eyed cashier looks at me and I'm thinking to myself, and I stomp out of the store and I'm starting to walk home. And then all of a sudden I hear this whoosh. And two boys run past me and they grab the bag out of my hand and they just keep running down the block. And I'm just like, oh my God, these weren't just any two boys. These were Dennis and Louie from the Overing Boys crew. They were like the two coolest boys in the neighborhood. Every boy in the neighborhood wanted to be them and every girl in the neighborhood wanted to make out with them. I had the biggest hormonal raging first ever crush I ever had on Dennis and I knew that it would never be reciprocated so therefore in my love I had the kind of hate that only a teenager can understand so I'm running after them and I, I try to catch up with them but then they start playing Saluji with me that's kind of like New York version of Monkey in the Middle so I run up to, to Louie and he throws the bag to Dennis and I run up to Dennis and he throws the bag at Louie and meanwhile I'm just like terrified that one of them is actually going to look inside this bag and see what's in it because you know that th th that's it if they see Kotex and, and that's I'm, I could just picture that my name is going to be Kotex head for the rest of my life so my shame made me run faster than they could and I yelled out fuck and I just tackled Louie and the box of Kotex squirted out of the bag onto Westchester Avenue where a number four bus ran it over and I started bawling and Louie's back is to the street he doesn't see the maxi pads fluttering down Westchester Avenue in the slush and he's just like shell it's only a box of cookies and I was just like cookies and then Dennis comes over and he says shut up Louie and he looked at me, and I knew that he knew what was in the street, what was in the box. But for some reason, he wasn't going to tell. So he helps me up, and he says, come on, Shell, we'll walk you home. So we stopped walking back towards my house, and the snow was really coming down now. I mean, there was at least a foot of it on the ground. And we're walking, you know, in my neighborhood, past the houses of people with small budgets and large imaginations and somewhere between the talking Rudolphs and the dancing Jesuses and competing sounds of Donna Summer Christmas album and Andy Williams Christmas album, we start playing. I remember twirling around trying to catch those big fat wet snowflakes on my tongue and then 
Dennis scoops up some snow from a car and throws it at Louie, and then Louie throws the snow at me, and then we start like climbing onto the cars, and you could do that, there's no car alarms back then. So we just like pulling all the snow and throwing at each other, and then we start pushing each other down, and then we start running, and then we decide that we're gonna just start rolling. One of us fell, I don't know who started it, but then we'd like this giant teenage snowball, and we're just like rolling in the street until all of us, like we just hit this light post, and it's like a spell was shattered or something. And I remember standing up and somehow the three of us were holding hands and this really freaked me out. So I just like dropped the hands and I'm just standing there and I remember the sun was setting and the sky was just this blazing purple red. And in the halo of the street light, there was this snowflake that was on one of Dennis's eyelashes. I remember thinking that was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. And I, I knew that I had to stop looking at it, but I couldn't stop looking at it. And Dennis just kept looking at me and he said, Shell, are you home? And I just nodded because I, I, I couldn't speak. And then Dennis bent down and kissed me full on the lips. And then Louis kissed me on the cheek. And then they ran up the block saying, Merry Christmas, Shell. And meanwhile, I was just like floating on this cloud because I had never really been kissed on the lips by a boy before. So I'm just like, oh my God, I've been kissed. I felt like and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, when he, remember when he, he has the crush on Clarice and she kisses him and he goes, I'm cute, I'm cute. So I, I float up the five flights of stairs to the apartment. And when my mother says, where's my box? I told her the bus ran it over. And she made me pay her back out of my allowance. And when my father came home from work, he had to go out and buy my mother's box. When two feet of snow, and he wasn't very happy about it either. Not long after Christmas, Dennis and Louie were walking to McDonald's when a car drove around and yelled something at them. And then Louie threw a can of beer at them. And then the car came around again and someone in the back seat shot at them. Dennis and Louie were murdered. And I don't know if you've ever been to a teenager's funeral, but it's not like when your grandfather dies because he had a cough or smoking for 75 years. It's, it's a lot different. And I remember Dennis's funeral Everybody from the neighborhood was there, boys, girls, parents. And I remember kneeling in front of the casket, crossing myself, and the casket was closed because they both died from massive head wounds. And I'm just there shaking and crying, and somebody kneels on, on the bench next to me, and it's, it's Dennis's mother. And I look at her, and she was just the grayest, saddest thing I had ever seen in my life. And she asked me if I had known Dennis well. And I didn't know what to say. I just said, yeah, kind of. And she looked at me for a minute. And then she went off to talk to somebody else. But now I realize that she, Dennis's mother, was there alone in that huge room of people 
because I didn't remember seeing any brothers or sisters, no father, no grandparents, no aunts, uncles, or cousins. It was just her. And she was probably about the same age then as I am now. And because now I have an adult mind, I realize what a gift it would have been for me to tell her what a gentleman her son was, that he didn't betray my secret, that he played in the snow with me, and that his kiss was my first. And a lot of Christmases have come and gone since that day, but I'll never ever forget what the wind and the snow and the colored lights gave to me and Dennis and Louie on the last pure night of our childhood. risk the song is called christmas day we are not alone by paper root and we just heard from michelle carlo that same story appears in a slightly different version in her memoir fish out of agua wonderful book and it's a story she calls the gift another way that people can participate in risk who don't happen to maybe live in the new york or los angeles areas is to share with us recordings from storytelling shows where you're at. And our final story tonight comes from the wonderful storytelling show in Chicago, This Much Is True. You can find them at thismuchistruechicago.com. We'd love to hear more from Chicago and 
from anywhere else in the world as well. But Scott Whitehair is the producer and co-host of This Much Is True. Scott is just a wonderful guy, and he shared this recording with us. I fell in love with it immediately. This is Scott Whitehair with a story we call True Believers. exactly when I became an adult, but I know that it hurt. I, I'm not really aware of the time I became a grown-up, but I know it had an impact. I don't remember the exact circumstances or details of when I found out there was no Santa Claus, but I'm pretty positive that after I found out, I most likely went down to a corner bar and stared into a bourbon. <laughs> Sitting in the shadows, listening to some mournful saxophone. I lost something that day. I lost something that I'd had up until that point in my life. And, and it wasn't just around Christmas time that I felt that loss. I, when I believe in something, I believe it. And it affected my whole world to find out that this major piece of information was wrong. For instance, like my mom would be like, uh, do you want a waffle for breakfast? And I'd be like, sure. Uh, I mean, if that's what it's called, really. <laughs> you know what, I'm not hungry. I'm gonna go in and sit on what you've been referring to as the couch. <laughs> it affected me. But I had a reprieve. I had a younger brother, three years younger than me, Oh, and I lived vicariously through him each of those Christmases when I knew and he didn't. It was, it was amazing. I would start as early as October. In our bedroom, I'd slap a shoe against the wall and I'd be like, oh, sounds like someone's on the roof. <laughs> Which probably terrified him. <laughs> I would start early getting out the Sears catalogs and going through and, you know, circling things. But here's the thing. More than just living through my brother... I got the best of both worlds. I got to live through him as a kid, and I got to be an adult at Christmas, too. So we'd spend the time going through the magazines and circling things and deciding what we wanted Santa to bring us. But then I'd stop by my mom's room later, and I'd be like, hey, mom, go easy on the matchbox cars this year. <laughs> and uh, you might want to think about that uh, Steelers football. He's been eyeing it a lot. Um, I got on Christmas morning was the best. The night before, I would be the one to come down and take the bites out of the cookies. <laughs> and to drink the milk. And then go back to bed and talk it up as what, would, what was going to happen. When was he going to come? What was he going to bring? And then finally, when Christmas morning was there, I would sit back and let him open all of his gifts first. 
I'd sit there in my robe on the couch with my parents. <laughs> As he opened things, I'd glance over my mom and dad like, look at this guy. <laughs> the scamp. <laughs> that look of joy and just pure, unadulterated innocence on his face. I lived for that. That wasn't the look on his face when I went out into the yard on a very unseasonably warm November day. We had a swing set in our yard and Brian was sitting, barely swinging. He was more just doing this with his feet. And he had a look of concern. About as much concern as you can have at eight. (laughs) And I watched him there and I didn't know what was wrong with him, but I looked at the swing next to him and swinging vigorously and high was Tim Sutton, the neighbor from the backyard. Tim was pale and beautiful and blue eyes. He had a little shock of blonde hair and he swung in the sun. He looked like an angel, (laughs) which is, is kind of funny because if there's one thing that Tim wanted to eventually be in life, it was an angel. Tim's family, the Suttons, made the Flanderses look like a gang of serial rapists. (laughs) They was everything that you hear in stereotypes. Like, those people aren't real. They're real. We had weird snacks when we went over there. We played biblical trivial pursuit games. I remember the one time looking through their window on the hill and watching as Ruth stood and Shelley played the piano for the family for like an hour. Uh, They were good. They were kind. They were friendly. They were warm. Everybody in my neighborhood besides them thought they were weirdos. <laughs> You'd hear things like, I don't fucking believe. Those fucking guys eat dinner together every night. <laughs> or like, I saw Tim in the driveway. I asked him how he's doing. He called me sir. <laughs> I loved the Suttons because I felt like they made our neighborhood better. I felt like they classed it up. At a barbecue, you had everybody carrying on and wrestling around and knocking things over, but the Suttons were sitting there, and that meant that we were okay. And I especially liked Tim, and I took care of Tim, because I was a horrible Catholic. I'll be honest, I've eaten more pepperoni on Good Friday than most people have eaten the rest of the year. But I thought... If I'm nice to Tim, I'm not going to make it up there, but maybe he'll have somebody go easy on the lashes or the boiling water and things back to me. So I saw Tim, and he's swinging, and I see my brother, and I'm, I say, what's, what's going on, guys? And before my brother can say anything, Tim says, there's no Santa Claus. And I can't react. Inside, I'm going, you fucker! <laughs> but, I, but I can't do that because my brother's watching me to see how I'll react. I, I have to have this poker face. And the most I did, I did this, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> hoping that that didn't betray anything. And this is the thing. Uh, Tim wasn't trying to be nasty. This is what Tim grew up with. This was the highest thing you could do if you were Tim. He was taught, he never had Santa Claus. It was about Jesus. And as he swung, I tried to say, no, Tim. And he goes, it's about Jesus Christ. He was doing what he was taught to do to spread the word. There was not a malicious bone in his body. 
But now I looked at my brother and I saw that look start to spread on his face. Putting, putting things together, starting to doubt. And as Tim's swinging, I'm like, ha, Tim's joking, Brian. Don't, don't listen to him at all. Tim, you're joking. And Tim is like, no, the season is about Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus. And I'm like, Tim, shut up. And I'm like, he's just joking around. Tim's like, it's not a joke. It's about Jesus. And he's swinging. And I'm like, Brian's here. And we start yelling at each other in the yard. Like, he's like, it's Jesus. I'm like, shut up, Jesus. Shut up, Tim. Jesus, Jesus, shut up. And he's swinging harder and harder as he gets the power of righteousness behind him. And his feet are in the air and his hair's flying and he's pumping his legs and he's like, Jesus, there is no Santa Claus. And I know right then, I look at my brother and I see it's slipping, it's almost gone. He's losing some, I'm losing something. So as Tim hits the height of the swing on the backswing, look at my brother, and I take a step over. <laughs> and as Tim swings down, I just stick my foot straight up. And I impact him right in the chest. <laughs> He flies off backwards in like a little mini Christ pose. <laughs> Into the dust. <laughs> I look at my brother. He's no longer wondering if there's a Santa Claus or not. He's trying to figure out why I would want to viciously attack the neighbor boy. <laughs> So I look at him, I look back to Tim, and Tim is coming too. And he very slowly and methodically sits up, dusts himself off. He gets up, he, he glances at me, no judgment. He just glances at me and slowly walks. <laughs> on a tree, over, past the fence. We just watch him go, he goes out around the house. He tries the side door, it's locked. He comes over, <laughs> goes in, closes the door. I look at my brother who just has no idea what's going on. And I say, hey, Brian, I want to tell you something. I found out where mom hid the hot cocoa. And she's not going to be home for like 20 more minutes, so we could probably drink like three or four packets of peace <laughs> if we hurry. And we ran inside. Now, I, we didn't see Tim for a while. <laughs> when we did, though, he forgave me, obviously. That's what he does. We were cool. Uh, but my brother got to have one more Christmas. I got to have one more year of Santa Claus. Now, and all it cost me was uh, viciously kicking a young Christian kid in the chest. <laughs> That's it. Now, I know that you may be feeling for Tim and worried about him, even though this was long ago, but I want to tell you a couple things. First of all, Tim was fine. I looked him up on Facebook, and now he has a little 
blonde kid who's probably around, going around trying to ruin Christmases. <laughs> but he's doing great, and he's a good dude, and him and his family are all doing really well. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you is that I gave Tim a gift that day. <laughs> he may have failed in his first conversion attempt, but I gave Tim an experience. Uh, an experience most Christians never had. Maybe the most Christian experience. I allowed Tim to sacrifice his earthly body <laughs> for people who were completely unworthy. <laughs> Thanks. Deafening silence rained on earth. No hope was found. No hymn was heard. The broken heart of could not sing. Who will break down the soundless lingering? That's it for this first of our two Holiday Stories episodes. Uh, The next one is coming up on the 31st. This is a song by a band called How to Throw a Christmas Party. Large group of people in Holland who gather each year to do what their name says. Well, if you don't already know, Risk is a Maximum Fun podcast. You can find us at MaximumFun.org. And when you go there, you will discover a slew of phenomenal podcasts. Jordan Jesse Go, Bullseye, Judge John Hodgman, International Waters, My Brother, My Brother and Me, The Memory Palace, so many great shows. And a wonderful community. Maximum Fun fans gather for Max FunCon twice a year. And they have a fantastic blog and a forum where every week you can find me talking to fans about our episodes. Now listen, we need your help to keep Risk running. And MaximumFun.org is the place to do it. When you donate there or become a member at Maximum Fun, that is how this listener-supported show gets its support. So please do consider visiting MaximumFun.org and becoming a member today. We'll be back with more holiday stories on New Year's Eve. In the meantime, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
This ends the recording of Christmas 1983. Please note that the word raspberry has never been used in this tape so far. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.